0: Second. Did you ever think you would make it? I feel I'm so close I could taste sweet victory. I know this life meant for me. Yeah, why would you bet on Goliath when we got Bet David? Value taming, giving values contagious. This world of entrepreneurs, we gain no value to haters. How they run, homie, look what I become. I'm
1: the, I'm the one. I'm Patrick, we're going to be your host of Value Team, and today I'm sitting down with Cambridge Analytical whistleblower, Brittany Kaiser. That's all I need to tell you. We went into a lot of different things, her campaign with Obama, with Trump. The inside of what's micro targeting, behavioral micro targeting, the technical aspect of it, her relationship with Alexander Nix, who was the founder of Cambridge. All I'm going to say to you is, if politics and the current micro behavioral targeting attract to you, want to know more about it? Don't miss this podcast. Brittany, thanks for coming out.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Yes,
1: yeah, so so you and I were talking earlier, and I was asking you, you know, what it's like to have the life that you've had because you've been all over the world, and you told me the longest you've stayed in one place was what the last 13 years?
0: For only 10 days.
1: <laughs> so, so let me get this straight so everybody understands this. In the last 13 years, you've only, the longest you stayed in one place was 10 days.
0: Sometimes I don't stray too far. I'll just go to a neighboring city somewhere else in the same state or the same country, but sometimes I'm in a different country every day.
1: How much of that is because of your personality? How much is, of that is because of where you're currently at?
0: A bit of both. Hi. I've always been someone that loves to explore the world, find out everything I possibly can, go and see and do everything I can get access to. And sometimes that turns out very well. And I suppose sometimes I get myself into a bit of mischief.
1: Who were you, though? Who were you? If I was friends with you, like, what kind of a 10 year old kid were you? Not even in high school. I want to know how you were at 10 years old.
0: When I was 10 years old, I spent a lot of my time sitting in the corner of the playground reading the biggest book I could find and not joining in the games of TAG.
1: <laughs> the biggest book you could find?
0: <laughs> biggest book I could find or I'd be at home working on my history fair, science fair project or studying for mathletes or debate club.
1: <laughs> How though? Is, is it your wiring or was it inspired by parents? Because I know your dad I think was like a real estate, uh, he was in real estate and mom was a uh, with Enron before, was there conversations about politics? Was there conversations about like deeper issues or was it just more in your DNA?
0: My parents always raised me to work as hard as I possibly could and to be a very high achiever. They both grew up in households where they had, uh, I would say they weren't completely motivated to be the most academic students. Uh, They got involved in a lot of things uh, as kids. Parents. Yeah, Um, so they just felt They just felt that they wanted to give me opportunities that they didn't have.
1: So did they kind of flip, meaning uh, they didn't have the highest standard of expectation and they said, we're gonna have a higher standard of expectation from you?
0: Exactly. It's
1: interesting how that goes, because it's like, (laughs) oh, it's too high. I'm gonna be a little bit more liberal, (laughs) leading my kids on this thing, and kids come back and say, I want a little bit more discipline.
0: Well, uh, (laughs) I I wouldn't say uh, a little bit more discipline. My mom was raised military, uh, so she had a lot of discipline, but she was the oldest of six kids. raising them on a military base so she was almost like a second mom and didn't really get to concentrate on her studies.
1: That's tough and you you also when you're when you're in that situation sometimes you also are not able to be a kid or a teenager because you're so much as relied on you to lead so you almost Mm -hmm. skip a generation of your life and you sometimes look back and say I don't even know what it is to be a kid.
0: Yeah my mom's expressed exactly that to me many times.
1: What kind of conversation was it if I'm in your house we got four or five cameras at your you know dinner table you six o'clock you know thursday night you're sitting having dinner you're 11 12 years old mom Dad, sitting what are you guys talking about
0: i would say probably what i did in school that day (laughs) i was always very interested to talk about what i had learned what i was going to do with it what i had done after school i was very lucky to be put in you know art lessons and photography lessons and be playing sports after school my parents really spent all of their lives trying to make sure that me and my sister had as many opportunities as possible
1: and obviously you did i mean uh, to 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 see what you ended up doing yourself and where you're at today there was a lot of that growing up
0: absolutely was there
1: conversations about politics and different issues or not really
0: so, interestingly enough, uh, my parents have considered themselves independent for right. a lot of their lives. Uh, my dad's side of the family, although they're from Chicago, they've always leaned conservative, mm-hmm. uh, but they have voted for both Republicans and Democrats. My mom's side of the family are military Republicans uh, that grew up in all over the world, so they do understand a world view, but they've lived by a military base and in the South for a while and have always voted Republican. So. My parents really didn't have a uh, kind of a strong uh, you know, party stance mm-hmm. and they never really instilled that in me or my sister. Even when we were little, they wanted us to feel out what what our religion should be, what our political views should be without enforcing that on us. So that
1: kinda that kinda was left on you, which is great yeah. because it, it allows you to uh think for yourself i grew up in a family my mother said they were communists my dad said they were imperialists so for me it was like oh yeah it was it was crazy you know yeah Uh, it's like if msnbc and fox news got married and had a baby it's me (laughs) so i'm the baby of msnbc and fox news that's kind of
0: amazing that's kind of amazing (laughs) right
1: it's kind of confusing because you love these these people and and they have such different worldviews, but it uh, first makes you just not wanna have anything to do with it and then later on, a little bit of the itch comes back and says, you know, I'm just curious to know why my mom thought this way, why my dad thought mm-hmm. this way. That's why I asked to see where you were at. So you're 14 years old, I think you're 14 years old. Are you in Scotland where you get this inspiration to go and want, go support Obama, President on Obama's <laughs> campaign? <laughs> is, that, is that right? Is that Did that really happen?
0: So 14 was when I joined uh, Howard Dean's campaign, his primary, mm-hmm. uh, that was 2003, I suppose. I think I was 15 or 16 when I first met Barack Obama. That was right after Howard Dean had lost the primary to John Kerry, and then I was supporting John Kerry as a volunteer, and I go to the DNC, the Democratic National Convention in Boston in 2004, and the young state senator Barack That's Obama right. is So you were there. Absolutely. Yeah, it was. I was in at boarding school, and there was a summer program that I was invited to participate in called Lead America, and they taught kids how to run political campaigns. So we did a mock political campaign. I actually ran for president. <laughs> did You really? <laughs> and I had a campaign manager and That's a press cool. team and all of this different stuff. It was. It was really interesting to learn all of the mechanics like that while you're at the DNC Mm -hmm. so they would take us to you know different caucus meetings and different uh, rallies and I went to this very small environmental rally there were about 30 people there and State Senator Barack Obama was the keynote speaker with only 29 other people competing with me for his time when he stepped off the stage
1: (laughs) how was that
0: the first time I saw him speak, it was awe-inspiring. Actually, I had heard of him before, but I didn't really know much about him. Obviously, state senators don't get a lot of press or mm-hmm. fame. But I'm from Chicago, so uh, you know, I, I knew of some of my politicians. Park. Are you,
1: what part of Chicago? Yeah, Lincoln Park yeah. is where
0: I grew up, yeah. and I was just so excited about what he was talking about supporting um, Senator Dick Durbin in blocking. Mm. British Petroleum from dumping into the streams and waterways that would that were polluting Lake Michigan. And I thought that was something I wanted to get involved with. I thought that I should support him in any way I could. And I asked, how do I do that? He said, volunteer for my campaign for U.S. Senate. Uh, I'm going to be running. And come to breakfast with me tomorrow morning if you're from Illinois. So I did that. And at breakfast the next morning, he said, By the way, I'm making a speech tonight. Uh, Jan Schakowsky, why don't you get her a ticket? I was sitting there having breakfast with him and Rahm Emanuel. I guess I'm, yeah, I'm 15 or 16 years old. And I get this ticket. <laughs> and I go to see his famous speech about how we're not the red states and the blue states, we're the United States. And that's when I knew that he was going to be president.
1: It's, well, just, it's the moment, you know, some people have the moment. That was the moment where. You heard him speak, He said, this guy could be a president. Mm-hmm. Now, a- at the moment you're sitting there having breakfast with him, do you have any idea who he is going to be like? Are you getting a feeling of this is a very special guy, he could go places, did you know that already? Absolutely. How you, did you know that? You
0: can feel it from the second that you meet him. I mean, a lot of people only have the opportunity to see him through the TV screen, uh, which is unfortunate because when, when you meet him, he just has this aura about him where you can tell that he is genuine that he's powerful and that he has true intentions.
1: Genuine, powerful, and true intentions. Mm-hmm. That's a good combination. Yeah, it is. That's a good combination to be Absolutely. president one day.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. A two-term president one day, right? Exactly.
1: Very. So from there, what happens? So you, you do that, you work with him, then what happens next?
0: So I, I went to go finish high school. Okay. <laughs> um, I left the United States. When uh, George Bush got his second term, that was my last year, and it was my first year going to Scotland. So I started college there at Edinburgh University, and it was in my second year there when Barack uh, announced that he was going to be running for president, or Senator Obama, I should say. And I thought, well, you know, university is great and all, but it's not as important as this guy becoming president (laughs) of the United States. That's what you were thinking yeah so i i left university actually i told my professors that if i was going to uh leave i was doing something important i'm going to go work on the u.s presidential elections aren't you so excited for me and they said oh great you're going to work for hillary clinton it's like no that no uh senator barack obama he's my senator i'm from the state of illinois and they didn't know who he was so they said well it's It's really not a good idea for you to be leaving university in order to you know just go go work for someone that's not going to win Um, they told you this yes more than one professor they said you know if you leave now that the best grade you can get is you know a 60 or 70 percent because you'll be failing all your exams I said okay fail me then I'm leaving
1: was it almost like a proving a point thing to you or no? Like, did you get that chip saying, what do you mean this guy's not going to win? Did you get that feeling yourself or no?
0: I, I realized that it was it was going to be something that they looked back upon and regretted, not me.
1: Did you ever go back and see <laughs> them or no?
0: Yeah, I went back and finished my degree, of course.
1: So you had a conversation after <laughs> he got elected? <laughs> yes. What, what was that conversation like?
0: It was more like, well... Congratulations! <laughs> <laughs> what are you gonna say? Yeah. <laughs> it
1: happened. Hillary's exactly. not the president. You know, and and the first one was uh, uh, first one was McCain, right? McCain and uh, Palin. You're doing your school, and then what happens next?
0: I was in school while I got the opportunity to go study abroad in Hong Kong, and. I was very excited about this, this was actually why I didn't apply for a job in the Obama White House. Most of us that had worked on the campaign uh, were offered that opportunity to continue and move to the White House once we won. And I said, well, I've been studying Chinese for so many years, I got this amazing opportunity to go study in Hong Kong, I've never been there. Uh, it's really important for me to go and explore Asia after studying Mandarin for so long, and Asian history and Asian religion. It's actually much more important to me to go do that. You, you, know? you,
1: you believe that, that it was much more important to you? Yes. W- why is that?
0: Uh, going out and seeing the world and experiencing new things was always kind of the core of what I wanted to achieve in my Makes life. Sense. See as much and explore as much as I could in my lifetime. But also, I really thought, you know, if I'm going to come back and do the American government any service, it's probably going to be more in a diplomatic role, ambassador. Me doing communications for the White House is not a good use of my time, actually. So I I did go to Hong Kong and very quickly got wrapped up in uh, the human rights world there, which is very topical now, of Mm -hmm, course. mm -hmm. Uh, But this was 2008. Um,
1: well, 11 years ago, and now mm-hmm. it's all they talk about.
0: Yeah, exactly. And in 2008, the Chinese government was trying to push uh, something called Article 8, which would have given the Chinese Communist Party a veto over anything that was decided in the Hong Kong parliament. Mm-hmm. And this obviously put the people in Hong Kong in an uproar, because the entire point of them being a special administrative region is that they are allowed to administrate their own region. <laughs> they have their own parliament. They make their own decisions. And I would spend a lot of time marching in the streets. It looks kind of similar to the things that you've seen recently, the big protests, you know, out with umbrellas, so the cameras can't see your face, people wearing masks, and protesting and demanding that the parliament get rid of this or the Chinese communist party to stop pushing that. It's not as it's not as bad as some of the bills that they tried to put through this past year, which is why the protests now are a lot worse. But it definitely became a core part of what I did while I was a student there. And I started really getting into human rights and uh, luckily met some incredible people that did a lot of work at the United Nations and at the European Parliament. And I thought, well, you know, I'm studying international relations. Actually, human rights is what I want to do because the people that I'm meeting here and working with every day are very inspiring.
1: Are you uh, when you when you're going through that with uh, being inspired to do work with human rights? The deeper you get, is it getting more troubling to you, and is it more unsafe to talk about it openly that we need to do something about this? Did did you get any of that feeling there or no?
0: The more you find out, the worse it is. Definitely, that's,
1: that's yeah,
0: <laughs> uh, definitely
1: in China specifically.
0: China specifically has always been a place that I've concentrated on in terms of my research and my work originally because I thought it was one of the greatest civilizations on earth and I wanted to go live in China and know everything about it. And then when I started understanding the politics there and the way that people are treated and the way that minorities are targeted, I thought this is a place I don't want to be, but it's a place in need of reform, and maybe I can help that.
1: What made you believe it's one of the greatest civilizations? Was it the education? Was it the schooling you went to? Was it a professor that pa- painted China to be a great place and America's not as good as China? Was there any influence there, or was it yourself?
0: I, well, originally it was actually my grandfather who spent um, 27 years in military intelligence and originally in, uh, in the uh, infantry, in uh, Korea and in Vietnam. He was a paratrooper and then went into military intelligence for a long time. And when I was in eighth grade, preparing to go to boarding school, I told him, "Grams, I want to take Japanese. Uh, I'm, I'm given this amazing choice of all these different languages. And I want to take something that most of my friends are not going to get the opportunity to take. And he said, no, no, that's not what you want to take. I see they also have Chinese as a choice. You should take Chinese. Like, okay, explain to me why. He goes, this is one of the most powerful civilizations on earth and by the time you are uh, in the working world, probably at least a fifth or even a quarter of the world is going to be speaking this language and it's gonna be much more important than Japanese and you need to know that now. This was 2000, I suppose.
1: Was he, was he, am I active at that time or no? Was he a uh, military intelligence? Was he still active or no?
0: Are, are you ever inactive?
1: <laughs> what well, I'm saying the <laughs> 27 years. Once you joined years, intelligence. <laughs> once the 27 years, was he still during his 27 years or is it post?
0: No, te- technically retired. Okay. But, uh, he would still get calls when assistance was required.
1: I mean, 27 years of experience, they're going to be able to use the intel and experience you got, so they're going to call you. That Absolutely. makes sense. So w- it's, it's very, so, so was, was your grandpa a big inspiration into being who you are today? Definitely. He was, so very close, that's your mom's dad. Yes, yes of yes. course. Makes sense, yeah. so okay, so now you're in China, you're kind of seeing what's going on. You're, the, the deeper you get, the more concerned you are. Mm-hmm. What do you do next?
0: So I had to go finish the fourth year of my degree at Edinburgh University. This was my third year abroad in Hong Kong. So I came back to finish my... It was technically a a master's with honors in international relations, and I was doing uh, international law and Chinese as the two kind of other main components besides just international relations. And so I came back and I ended up writing my entire master's thesis on human rights in China. On Falun Gong persecution, on the illegal organ harvesting trade, on persecution of Uyghurs, um, you know Muslim minorities, and the political prison camps, which is. Not just something I learned in Hong Kong, the people that I met there gave me accreditation to go participate as a human rights lobbyist at the European Parliament and at the United Nations in Geneva. So I spent a lot of time there with a lot of the world's top experts, a lot of people who were considered defectors, who had escaped political prison camps or re-education through labor camps, they call it. And I was just... Kind of blown away by some people's stories and the gravity of the problem because it looked very much like, uh, well, you know, I I grew up Jewish and going to a Jewish school, and it looked very much like a lot of the stuff that I had studied about the Holocaust growing up. And I was shocked to find out that there were things like that still going on in the modern world. You know, I'm still very young, a teenager, and starting to figure all of this out. And I thought, well, this is a topic that the world needs to know about.
1: What, what, what do what do people think about when you compare that? I mean, I'm sure it's not the first time you've said it had signs of a Holocaust type of a mm-hmm. tendencies. What what do people tell you when you share that with them?
0: This was I don't want to say a taboo topic, but still a very minority group of researchers and human rights activists that were involved in exposing uh, this type of um, these types of abuses back then. Mm-hmm. Now it's a little bit more mainstream. Um, more people understand it, it comes up a lot more in the press, it comes up a lot more in uh, diplomatic conversations when countries like the United States are thinking about their relationship with China. And it's, it's no longer, I would say, uh, a, a topic that you would have to be in a tiny meeting room in some far-flung wing of the European Parliament building <laughs> to, to know about. Now it's it's a lot bigger, so um, I'm happy that so many people have followed that through and mm-hmm. done something and put pressure, but uh, I definitely think we're, we're hopefully starting to live in a world where things like that cannot go unseen anymore.
1: What, what do you think about when politicians protect China? You know, sometimes people are too careful, like, Even today, like there's, I'll have guests that'll come here and I'll interview them and they'll say, there's only one thing I can't talk about. What's that? China. Mm -hmm. This is the one topic I can't talk about, China. What is it with so many politicians, business folks, you know, anywhere that has any kind of link to China that's not the one topic they wanna talk about? Mm,
0: It's because they're afraid. Afraid of what though? afraid of Chinese money being pulled out of their businesses, afraid of Chinese companies not wanting to do business with them, afraid of Chinese spies following them around. Trust me, I've had that happen to me. <laughs> Chinese spies following you around. <laughs> Absolutely. Definitely, uh, especially at all of the meetings at the you know European Parliament and the UN where China is discussed. There's plenty of people there where they're wearing badges that aren't even their real name. You don't know where they came from. They're not from a human rights organization. It's pretty obvious, but a lot of people are afraid of that, and I, you know, I totally understand. (laughs) You know, I I totally understand. But if you're not willing to stand for something, then you stand for nothing.
1: I I agree with that, and uh, it it, it's in a way empowering them to know that you're afraid of them. To me, it's exactly what they want. They Mm -hmm. want to impose the fear so you stop talking about it because. They'll threaten you in their own ways. I mean, you got sports, you got NBA being hit by it. You got business people being hit by it. You got politicians being hit by it. Yeah. very interesting what's going on right now with them. So, so how does ho- this whole thing come about? Let's go right into Cambridge Analytica. That's mm-hmm. been your experience. You've done a lot of different things. You worked on a lot of different projects. Mm-hmm. How was the transition from where you're at to all of a sudden saying I'm going to work with Alexander? I'm going to go and work with Cambr- uh, Cambridge Analytica. How did that happen?
0: Right, so I was still going back and forth between my academic work and my activism, which was all you know pro bono, spending my student loan to get myself to Geneva to the UN. And I'm in the third year of my PhD. I'm writing a doctorate on something called preventive diplomacy, mm-hmm. which means that the people in the world that hold the most diplomatic power, so heads of state, presidents, prime ministers, uh, ambassadors. Preventive diplomacy is how they can intervene in situations before massive atrocities happen. So how do you stop war before it happens? How do you, uh, you know, intervene in a country's economy before um, there's massive inflation or a famine? There's all of these different factors. And somehow my entire Doctorate, or at least the third chapter that I was working on when I met Alexander was all about how you could use big data and predictive algorithms in order to predict the future and find out that any of these atrocities, or war, or violence, or any other problems in society find out that they're going to happen before they do so that you can intervene early on and prevent it. Now, no one at my law school could teach me about big data (laughs) or predictive algorithms so one of my friends introduced me to the CEO uh, Alexander Mm Nix that's actually the first chapter of my book and I thought hey this is very interesting he's using data for defense he's using data for politics he's using data for humanitarian purposes okay this is the type of stuff that I need to learn if I'm ever going to finish my PhD. So let's see if I can get a bit of consultancy work and get an income besides my student loan payments and uh, see where this goes.
1: How is he pitching you? When when you first meet him, how impressive of a guy was he? I know you talk about when you met uh, President Obama, you know, presence, character, power, all of that, you know, combined together. What was Alexander Nix's personality the first time you met him?
0: I really thought that he was someone that was, <laughs> I think i des- describe him uh, as, uh, you know, very posh, uh, the, the type of Englishman that didn't usually describe the friends that I had on a day-to-day basis, but someone that was so incredibly privileged that he had extreme expertise. He knew about things in the world because of his access to powerful people, because of Probably tons of projects that he had undertaken around the world. Mm-hmm. And he had power. So it wasn't that kind of awe inspiring Barack it Obama wasn't. feeling. No, nothing like that. But it was definitely that feeling where you know that this is a person that really knows what they're talking about, that they are very powerful and they have the network to do what they say that they can do. And that has a different sort of aura. <laughs> that has a, a different sort of pull, I suppose. It, it is magnetic, just in a different way.
1: So he recruits you and you decide to go run with him. What happens next?
0: Mm-hmm. So I joined this company and immediately I'm introduced to some of the people that I suppose I would have considered my mentors in, in most situations, The Cambridge Analytica or the SCL group, Strategic Communications Laboratories, um, which was what it was called at the time, the parent company, they had a lot of other people that had spent their life in human rights work and in uh, you know, humanitarian operations. People from the International Rescue Committee and the United Nations and diplomats from the Commonwealth. And wow, I thought, these people are amazing. I can't wait to work with them. We started working on all of these different projects that were both humanitarian, some were defense, and some of them were politics in countries that I had never been to before, I didn't know much about. So it was a very steep learning curve when and, I first got there. And
1: what are you doing? What is your role? Uh, uh, is it biz dev? Are you mm-hmm. mainly going building relationships? You're not necessarily doing the uh, data analytics. What, what are you doing within Cambridge Analytica?
0: Right, so I had no data experience. Got it. Um, before really not much. I mean obviously working on the Obama campaign I had a uh, digital and social media strategy experience, but not data analytics and data science. So my role in the company was business development. So I would go out and build relationships with people who could use data analytics or were approaching us that they wanted to use data analytics and figure out what their goals were, what capacity they had, you know, what they're trying to achieve and help design a program. So that usually included me helping design a proposal of how they were gonna use data, how that would help them achieve their goals, and then moving that through to contract and helping build the team that would go do that for them.
1: So are you selling or are you pitching somebody else's selling and closing?
0: I'm usually, well in the very beginning I was, uh, working with Alexander or Dr. Alex Taylor, who was the chief data uh, scientist mm-hmm. at the time, and they would do the main pitching in the beginning until I was at the company for long enough to start pitches on my own. But that took me about six months to learn enough from every department to actually be able to go do that by myself. Eventually That's the goal- That's
1: impressive though, six months later for you to start pitching and sitting down with these high-profile people, that's, that's, uh, that takes a lot to be able to do. How old are you at that time when you're doing this? This is... Uh, 26. You're 26 when you're doing this. Yes. And you're sitting with some of the most powerful people in the world. Yes. And you're, signing con- you're getting them to uh, agree to do business with you guys and spend millions of dollars on advertising. Yes. It's pretty impressive <laughs> to be able to do that. So yeah. you're going, you're building relationships, you're bringing them in, they're signing the contract. Uh, Is it purely a marketing strategy pitch that you're talking to them about? Or is it, we're the best of the best, we're the only game in town? Like, did you guys almost have a monopoly in that play or no?
0: So in some respects, uh, the SCL group had so much global experience in running political campaigns that that was the big pitch at the time. Oh, look at what we've done all around the world, all of these huge campaigns in countries with up to hundreds of millions of people or, you know, tiny island nations, any size of political campaign, we can figure out a strategy, we can execute, and we can win if you give us enough time and funding. And that was kind of the big play because on the data analytics side, that was very new. I joined the company in 2014, Mm -hmm. and only in 2013 did they birth Cambridge Analytica, which was to be the, the North American, Uh, the North American subsidiary of the SCL group, specifically because in the United States there weren't any data laws or regulations and therefore the amount of data that you could purchase and license to do predictive analytics was unmatched anywhere else.
1: So let's unpack the the company. Who is behind it? Because you see a lot of names that Mm -hmm. come behind Cambridge Analytica. Who Who was the power, the money behind the brand?
0: So for Cambridge Analytica specifically, it was the Mercer family and Steve Bannon. And they came in in 2013 in order to basically have a separate but like wholly owned subsidiary of the SCL group that would just operate in North America. And they were really specifically concerned with the United States, obviously. So Alexander had pitched them, here's all of my political experience from all around the world. Here's what my company can do. I want to start a data analytics company. And he had decided that because Sophie Schmidt, uh, the daughter of Eric Schmidt of Google, uh, had interned for him in 2010, I believe, or maybe it was 2013, sorry, I'll have to double check in my book. But she had interned for him and every day had shown him what Google Analytics was doing and that predictive analytics was the future. So he thought, as soon as she left, I'm going to go build my own data analytics company, not just in the eyes of Google, but I'm going to combine data and politics and supercharge everything that I'm already doing.
1: Now, where does Facebook come into play? When, when does uh, when does the conversation of Facebook come in, where the ability to get five different, five thousand different, uh, uh, you know, points of a uh, you know, tracking of this person's known for this and that person's known for this. When does Facebook come into play?
0: Right, so again, that's also in 2013, it was part of the founding strategy of Cambridge Analytica, which was to begin to build one of the largest databases that anyone had ever seen. And this included harvesting data off of Facebook, which at the time was pretty easy to do. Uh, Facebook had started a program, I believe in 2010, where you could, as a developer, pay for access to any of the data uh, for Facebook users, you just had to create an application. You could create something like a game, Candy Crush Farmville, or you could create a quiz. The famous one is, this is your digital life, which Mm -hmm. is one of the first ones that Cambridge made, but you probably also would recognize ones like, what country should you really be living in? Or who's your favorite Disney princess? And so those.
1: This has given you data. This has given you information.
0: Absolutely. Uh, I'm sure most people never read the terms and conditions of those apps. But if you did, you would have seen that it gave the developer of that application not only your data, but the data of everybody else in your network, which unfortunately is not actually legally possible. It's not legally possible, it's technically possible. But not legally. I cannot consent on behalf of another able-bodied adult. They have to consent on their own behalf. How
1: does that make it legal, though? It's not. So how were they able to do it? I mean, Facebook's not a small company when they're doing that.
0: Facebook created the Friends API, and the Friends API allowed people to do that.
1: How much money did that make them?
0: It's hard to estimate that. It's hard to estimate that. Um, I actually don't have those numbers. Uh, But originally, they thought this is... In order to have a developer Mm -hmm. program, you know, they wave uh, a carrot stick in front of people. Oh, you get access to all of this data in order to improve your product and get more users and whatever it is. And, um, you know, you pay us a nominal fee for that. They had at least 40,000 developers participating in this program. So whatever the fees were from 40,000 different companies, at the time that was good enough for Facebook. But again, they were still a bit young. It was only a couple years later where they realized our data that we're collecting off our users is so incredibly valuable that if we don't give anyone access to it, and they have to advertise in Facebook, then we're going to make a lot more money. And that's why they closed it off in April 2015.
1: April 2015. Mm -hmm. How long did it stay open?
0: About five years I think
1: five years mm-hmm. and a lot of people took advantage of it absolutely so so is Cambridge Analytica possible to rebuild today
0: mm, not in the not with the same Facebook data sets obviously those data sets are still out there they're all over the world and we can never get our privacy back because of it or at least if you had a Facebook account before April 2015 but uh, you can build something very similar because the majority of Cambridge's data was not from Facebook. It was from big data aggregators like Experian, and info group, mm. Magellan, Axiom, L2, which is it labels and lists, it's a political data company. Anyone, anywhere in the world, whether you're American or Russian or from anywhere, you can buy that data. Can just buy that data. Those, are, That's the lack of regulation in this country. Anybody can wow. buy that data.
1: I, I saw the number that the data is a trillion dollar year industry.
0: Multi trillion.
1: Multi trillion dollar year industry. Absolutely. Data.
0: Data is the world's most valuable asset now. It runs all decision making and all user experience and all communications for every organization, for profit, nonprofit, governmental.
1: You know, 10 years ago, TEDx did their convention. I think it was in either Seattle or Canada. This was like maybe 11 years ago or 10 years ago. And one of the speakers got up and said, the future of business, anything you do, it's all about data. Mm -hmm. If you have data, you have value. Absolutely. Everybody's saying, what are you talking about? You got oil, you got this, you got that. Nope, data's the future of everything. People that make a lot of money, it's gonna be data companies. So Facebook gets fined $5 billion. What's $5 billion for Facebook when they pay $5 billion fine?
0: It's nothing to them because their stock price spiked from all the press and uh, they made the money back.
1: In no time. Yeah. Five billion to Facebook is pretty much nothing.
0: But uh, this is a point that I really want to make, which is that it's nothing to Facebook, but it's a really big deal for the Federal Trade Commission. Why is that? Because the, the FTC has never had that type of budget and they're responsible for protecting consumers, right?
1: so now they have 5 billion dollars to play
0: with yeah i think that's a very good thing you Interesting, know it way might put it. it might not be good for it might not mean anything to facebook but it means a lot to the government
1: yes yeah, so what so so what they do with it now it allows them to go a little bit deeper with some other companies that are maybe doing what they're doing
0: I hope it doesn't just go to investigations. I hope it goes into investing into technologies that can protect consumers.
1: Well, government's not famous for doing good with money. So we'll see what they're (laughs) going to do. Hopefully they can stretch that $5 billion because you can do some damage with that. Uh, Right. Who is the modern day Cambridge Analytica today? Is there one?
0: I wish it was just one. Many of them. So many of them. Is there a dominant one? Mm, Not really. I would say a lot of them are still quite small um there's even a lot of them that came out of cambridge analytica a lot of I my bet. former colleagues sure just started new political consultancies and uh recently i think it was two maybe three months ago the university of oxford put out this uh really scathing report that showed companies even worse than cambridge analytica popping up all over the world uh, companies that could be described as propaganda as a service which I could say some of that is very relatable to what I saw at Cambridge Analytica, but some of it is worse. Um, they have disinformation and fake news as a service. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have that as a service. Yeah. Deep,
1: disinformation and fake news.
0: Yeah, disinformation and fake news. Um, definitely saw some disinformation at at Cambridge Analytica, but it wasn't really a core competency, um, but it was used in the Trump campaign for sure. and. Also, a lot of these companies now have offer bot farms and making mass amounts of fake accounts, and uh, troll factories, and all of these different things that you know Cambridge Analytica, to my knowledge, never did at all.
1: Cambridge Analytica never did at all. No. So you guys didn't say this. You didn't say, uh, "I'll have uh, some fake news for two million dollars." I'll have some. Uh, this information for five million dollars and give me some uh, these uh, troll, bo- troll bots to help me out
0: no a lot of people unfortunately confused what was coming out of Russia and what was coming out of Cambridge Analytica
1: so that was coming from them it wasn't coming out of Cambridge Analytica Absolutely. so so can you can you explain to the rest of us what is behavioral micro targeting traditional micro targeting and demographic polling
0: of course Um so Let me start with demographic polling. So demographic polling will mean that uh, I'm going to go out and ask questions of the population, and I'm going to make sure that my polling addresses the correct amount of men and women, different age groups, uh, different ethnicities, different belief structures, different... um, parts of the country or states that people live in um, according to the population, so it's weighted properly. And I'm gonna ask opinion questions like, do you like Donald Trump, right? And that's all well and good, um, but that doesn't give you that much information. i will give you a basic poll. Okay, you know, less than 50% of the country likes Donald Trump right now, okay what do you do with that for political communications? That doesn't help anything. It kind of just tests the water to see where, where, where people are at. What, what is the national feeling, right? Um, and so if you're going to go into, um, uh, what did you ask for the next level? Traditional
1: uh, micro-targeting or behavioral yeah. micro-targeting.
0: So uh, traditional micro-targeting is going to take all of these different people and put them into groups. And it's not just going to be, you know, all right, I'm going to talk to all of the women, or I'm gonna talk to all of the youth, but sometimes it does look like that. It might just be like, okay, I'm gonna talk to all of the conservative women, I'm gonna talk to all of the young people who care about the environment, I'm gonna talk to all of the conservative Hispanics in this state, and so it's putting together basic demographic categories and a little going a little bit further and then you will have a handful of different campaigns that will come out of a political campaign targeted at those different types of people. Give me an example. Um, So again like we're going to talk to youth about the environment okay great well that might mean that I'm not going to make any other environmental campaigns because I've seen that only youth are active or are talking about these topics when I've done polling. So we're going to talk just about environmental initiatives to the youth because they're going to be the people that are actually going to get active, they're going to come out to events, they're going to go vote for me because of my environmental policy, right? And and so that's what that will look like. Now, when you go into behavioral micro-targeting or you know, I would say real micro-targeting, this is when you don't have to pick and choose your campaigns here and there. You don't just have to choose, you know, okay, five or 10 big topics at targeted at different groups of people. You can target every single person in America if you want to, and you're going to target everybody according to how they view the world. So instead of just the youth campaign on the environment, I'm going to have a different campaign towards youth who are open-minded, and extroverted they're going to have a campaign about how you can get involved, how you can help <laughs> stop how you can help stop climate change because they're going to go and they're going to take an action and they're going to go and they're going to share that on social media and you can find something very specific for those people to get active that is about our hope for the future and how the you know the planet for our children can be better than it is for us today. Now there's going to be a whole different group of other youth that also care about the environment, but they're introverted and neurotic. So you're going to play instead on their fears about the environment. You're going to show them those pictures of a polar bear standing on a tiny piece of ice with melting ice caps in the background. You're going to show them the giant floating island of plastic and all of the dead birds and fish around it. You're going to use fear based messaging in order to drive them to action or to care about your environmental policy. And when you're trying to do something positive in the world, I guess that doesn't sound as bad when I phrase it on a uh, let's save the environment type of platform. But it starts to get really bad when you talk about a different topic. Let's talk about registering to vote. What if? I saw that the open-minded and extroverted people could be encouraged to go vote, but the neurotic people could really easily be encouraged to not vote at all. Because I could instead make them afraid of politics. I could make them disengage with government. I could make them feel like their government has never done anything for them, so why should they care?
1: So you could flip and forget, like, let's win by not getting the guys to come out and vote and impose fear that this may not even happen or there's not even a chance, so don't even worry about coming out and voting. That, that's humble. So you guys went that deep into it?
0: That's what I was shown in the two-day debrief that I talk about in my book uh, that I was given a month after the Trump campaign. All my colleagues that had worked on the Trump campaign and the Trump super PAC showed me the strategies that they used um, when we were wondering, okay, what did you guys do? How did how did you win this? This is a crazy political upset that no one in history is ever going to forget. What did you do? And we thought we'd see some pretty cool stuff um, uh, with numbers, engagement, how did you get there? What were they clicking on? What were the tools that you used? There was a little bit of that, but there was also some really dark stuff that they showed us, um, and Voter suppression tactics were one of them. They showed us these charts of how they labeled different groups of people. You know, like I said, uh, you know, the, the neurotic youth environmentalist, or mm-hmm. you know, the conservative uh, Hispanic Texan. Um, there's you know, these different groups. Great, but they found groups of people who were going to vote for Hillary Clinton. They couldn't ever be convinced to vote for Donald Trump because the, the way that modeling works in politics is you're gonna show how likely people are to vote, how likely they are to support certain candidates, what issues are most important to them. Those are kind of the, the main crux of political modeling. So if you find the group of people that may, might vote if they're shown the right message or they might not if they're shown the wrong message and they're on the Hillary Clinton side, then the cheapest way that you can win with those people is by getting them not to go to the polls at all. Because no amount of money is ever going to get them to vote for Donald Trump. The
1: cheapest way is to get them to stay home.
0: Yes. That's the way that these tools are designed.
1: How much did the campaign uh, of folks know that these were some of the tactics being used?
0: Oh, they were very aware. Um, the target group was called deterrents to deter people.
1: De- for this part, yeah. to prevent them to coming out.
0: Yeah, the, chart, the charts that were used in the campaign headquarters, there was this big group of people on this chart that were called deterants. It's like an X and Y axis. You know, the Trump people are over here, Hillary people over here, very likely voters at the top and people who will never vote in their lives at the bottom. So if you can find people who are in the middle who may or may not vote, and they're definitely on the Hillary Clinton side, there's only one way you're gonna use your money.
1: So, so, and then you guys had also a group that you called Persuadables. What, yeah. w- is that a whole different category?
0: No, um, well, it's all on the same chart. So, okay. the Persuadables are people that are in between um, Hillary and Trump. Independents,
1: so, libertarians, I can go either way. I can go Hillary, I can go
0: Trump. Yeah, swing voters. Right. Um, in brand advertising, they're called the switchers. You can really mm-hmm. easy get the easily get them to try a different brand. Uh, That's the same thing in politics, except persuadability is something that, you know, it's very nuanced to measure. Everyone's persuadable on some topics, but persuadability on a presidential candidate Mm -hmm. uh, is a very specific type of person, right? (laughs) And finding those people and finding the persuadables that are very likely to vote is where the majority of the money always gets spent.
1: Now, which one of those groups was the most effective? Which, wh- if you were to say, uh, you know how like you, you're, you got a market and so what's your number one selling product? Milk, okay. <laughs> and you know it's like the main thing. You got in right. and out what's the number one combo I sell as one? Or you know, McDonald's is Big Mac. Right. Which one was the most effective out of all those different groups?
0: From all of the case studies that I saw, Um, The most effective were increasing intent to vote for for Donald Trump with persuadables and decreasing intent to vote for Hillary.
1: Decreasing vote to vote for Hillary. So the deterrents weren't necessarily the biggest ones that helped you out.
0: I I mean, it's a a bit of both. Um, When you're winning an election with tens of thousands of votes in some states, every little bit is something that needs to be considered.
1: Now, uh, let, me, let, me, let me ask you, what other clients did you guys have at that time? I know I saw Brexit, I think you guys were working with Brexit as well. Believe
0: EU campaign, yes.
1: Who else? What, what other major campaigns?
0: I mean, there were campaigns all over the world. I mean, Uhuru, Kenyatta in Kenya, um, working um, on the last presidential elections in Mexico. Um, working on, I mean, even in the state of Texas for Senator Ted Cruz's uh, primary, um, working in Romania, working in um, for other parties in the United Kingdom, working for, I mean, really, about 50 different countries over my time there.
1: Simultaneously.
0: Yeah. How you big sh- is
1: the team at the time?
0: Um, by the time we reached our peak, we were about 120 people full-time and another 30 to 50 consultants around the world that would come on for kind of ad hoc projects. That's not a lot. No. That's a a
1: small group and you guys were about to be, but I think the CFO, uh, Julian said, you guys were about to be a billion dollar company.
0: That's what everyone was aiming for.
1: Was that in the talks? Was that the conversations behind closed doors or not really?
0: Yes, Alexander talked about that every day. We're building a billion dollar company. Don't you want to be a part of it?
1: So he was a visionary. Absolutely. Now you also said in an interview that uh, three and a half years experience working with him, you didn't have a bad experience. You said you actually enjoyed working with him. Like it wasn't like it was, you know, something where you said this guy was my friend. He was my mentor at one point, right? And then things turned.
0: I thought he was.
1: Was there a dark side of working with him, or no?
0: Yes, what he was, that? was very volatile. Okay. So he'd be the type of person where, out of one side of his mouth, he's saying, you know, what bar are we going to tonight after our last meeting? And out of the other side of his mouth, he's screaming at you because we lost a contract to somebody else. But he would also be the type of person that would say, oh, I only like yell or get upset to make a point. And then, almost like Jekyll and Hyde, he would switch his personality. And then he's like, okay, let's go out to dinner. And so that was always kind of jarring and like an emotional roller coaster. And I always thought, okay, well, you know, I've I've never worked for, you know, a for-profit company really before. Uh, maybe this is what it's like because it's a bit ruthless. It's cutthroat. You're trying to make money. Uh, you know, I I had never done that. I had spent my whole life in academia or working for, nonprofits and advocacy organizations and charities. So I was like, okay, well. He's building a billion-dollar company. Mm-hmm. This, this must be what it's like. I don't know. <laughs> like, this is
1: supposed to be normal, like uh, working with somebody like this. Right. Yeah. And by the way, it, it's, many of them are wired like that. Right. Just so you know, many of them are wired like that. Uh, you know, you, you had a lot of people talk about the fact that behind closed doors, Hillary had a little bit of that uh, herself, and he had a lot of people talking about behind closed doors that Trump has. Right. a little bit of that. so it almost well, not
0: behind closed doors. Well, Trump, for him, it's like open Trump doors. Had <laughs> he had a whole TV show about it. You're fired. That's right.
1: And by the way, even right now when he gives a talk, get her out of here. Absolutely. Get her out of here. See all that fake news? I bet they're not going to show the middle finger she put up. Get her out of here. I mean, he just doesn't even, <laughs> even with the cameras on, he's he's got no filters. Which, exactly. Which in a way, you know, you got to appreciate that because you know he's, uh, he, he can't help himself. He is who? He can't even help himself on Twitter, you can at least say, let me think about this tweet for an hour before I send it out. No, nope, it's going out. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. So, so you guys have a lot of different clients. You have David Carroll, obviously, the guy who uh, uh, in the uh, documentary, the great hack documentary, he asked a very good questions. He said, where mm-hmm. did you guys get our data? Mm-hmm. How did they process it? Who did they share it with? Mm-hmm. Do we have a right to opt out? Now, your necklace right there, which you are the mm-hmm. founder of, own your own data. You're yes. the founder of own your own data. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it ownyourowndata.org? Am I saying it right? So, um,
0: ownyourdata.foundation is ownyourdata.foundation. our new nonprofit. Uh, but I actually started the campaign last April, right? You know, the week after I became a whistleblower, specifically to start raising public awareness, mm-hmm. starting to open up people's minds to the fact that your data is important, your data has contributed to one of the world's biggest industries and is now the world's most valuable asset. It it surpassed oil and gas in 2017 in its value, yet the entire time you've been producing data on digital devices, which Mm -hmm. for some people is their entire lives, Mm -hmm. you've never had any rights to that data. But how,
1: you know, a part of that, this is what I'll uh, come back to you and Challenge me on it. I mm-hmm. actually want to hear your argument. So, uh, uh, how many times you hear in the music industry, you know, oh my gosh, I signed a contract. I didn't know I gave up my, you know, rights of this forever to you. How many times have you seen it in movies, you know, mm-hmm. in uh, the, these stories? Well, you, I was in the contract. I never read. I trust you, you should have read the contract, mm-hmm. right? Or, you know, yeah, I own this thing myself, 51%. I thought you it 30%. No, this right. is how I set it up, right? So, how much of that are we responsible for to just say, oh. The new site is called what? The Facebook? Okay, <laughs> sign me up. I'll go. What information do right. I need to put in? My date of birth, where I was born? My relationship is complicated? Go ahead and put it. Right. How much of it is on us to have the freedom to choose and make the right decisions, and how much of it is on the creator of the brand, the Facebook?
0: Well, I'm so happy that you asked that, actually, because I think it's a, a bit of a balance, you know? Um, It's important to have informed consumers and informed citizens so that we know how to protect ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's also really imperative that the entire onus is not on us, that companies and even governments are giving us more transparency and awareness of what they're doing, and they're not putting us in a position where if we are not well-educated, that Mm -hmm. we're being taken advantage of and that we can so easily be abused. So right now we have two massive problems, which is that tech companies will not make the ethical decision without being forced to by laws and regulations that we don't yet have. Can you say that one more time? Of course. Um, So uh, tech companies will not make the ethical decision without being forced to by laws and regulations that we don't yet have. Right, And so that's why we're in the position True. where Facebook has so much power and mm-hmm. companies like Facebook. And on the other hand, we have a population that is incredibly digitally illiterate. We do not understand what our data rights are, how to protect them. We don't understand basic cybersecurity protocols and how to keep our data private if we wanted it that way. We don't understand media literacy, You know how to spot disinformation and fake news you know, kids don't know how to understand cyberbullying and how to stop it. We don't know how to be ethical to each other online, especially when we're anonymous. These are all things that need to start being integrated into the education system because we just have an undereducated population for our overexposure to, you know, our digital life. How much
1: much of that are we teaching in high school right now? How much of that are we teaching in junior high school right I mean you were you were 13 14 years old and 13 years old is what mm-hmm. eighth grade seventh grade yeah. I think that's what it is right so yeah. how much how much of that are is our educational system right now saying be careful texting this person messaging this person if you get a profile like this let me show you five different examples are we actually I actually don't know if we're doing this or right not.
0: now it's it's not taught in schools, but it's just being—it's st- uh, just starting, and that's why I started the Own Your Data Foundation. That's what we actually do. We do digital literacy training for kids in schools. Uh, we're starting with middle schools because we think that's really the first—the first age group, like Absolutely. eight to twelve years old, where your parents have probably given you a phone. Mm-hmm. Um, even if your parents haven't given you a phone, you might have a family computer, and you're probably using digital devices in school. So you have your own accounts, whether it be social Access, media yeah. or you, uh, or at least email accounts. You're surfing online for sure in order to do at least research projects. But you know, a lot of kids have full exposure. They're on their phones all day, every day. There are some kids where if their parents do not stop them, they will actually be on it 24-7. And not having the awareness of all of the different issues that I just listed is really debilitating, and it's really harming the the psyche of kids, and it's harming their chances to be successful. I
1: fully agree with you. Fully agree with you. I think there's a lot of things that we don't teach enough of. I think that's one of them that we gotta uh, uh, be more involved talking. There was a movie I watched. I think it was called Connected. Is it Connected by the guy from Horrible Bosses? Who's the guy? The guy that uh, Jennifer Aniston was. Uh, uh, no, no, the other guy. Horrible bosses. Kevin Spacey was his boss in the movie. What's that guy's name? Oh, He's a great um, comedian. Oh, I know who what you're is talking that guy's about. Name? That was a
0: really funny movie. Phenomenal
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. actor, right? <laughs> so good. But but in this movie, the story is about that his kid is being bullied online, and, and these friends of his in, in school create a, a, a profile, and they say, "Hey, you share your penis with me. I'm going to share the picture of my girl because I'm I'm going to share my privates." And they took the picture of the guy, the girl that they knew he was obsessed with, mm-hmm. right? And he sends it to him, and then the next day, those bullies from school take the picture and send it to everybody in school. Right. He goes to school, comes home. One day, the dad is coming home from work. He goes to his room. He's putting a loud, uh, heavy metal music, and he goes in. He's about to hang himself. Dad grabs him, puts him down. Says, "What happened?" And they find out what the whole story was. That was a perfect example of what kind of bullying is going to be taking place right now. If you don't teach your kids, one of the best movies to watch with your kids is that movie because, I think it will. Show your kids what is possible. Anyways, I don't want to digress from it. Let's go back to what we we're talking about. Would you, would you consider yourself, I mean, I know politically I've heard you say you're Bernie, you are Bernie, you were for Bernie, Yes. Not, uh, you were not Hillary camp, you were Bernie, and you're a Democrat. Would you still position yourself as that today, or has it changed a little bit?
0: I would say the way that I see American politics is more from an independent stance, especially because I spent my entire adult life living in the United Kingdom, where actually even the Democrats in the United States look um, quite conservative. (laughs) In in the United Kingdom and in a lot of other uh, countries in Europe, it's taken for expectation, taken for granted that everybody has free access to health care, that if you become homeless, you get a government house, uh, that you can have a weekly or monthly stipend from the government that will cover the needs of you and your family if you fall on hard times. So <laughs> a lot of the policies in America, even on the Democrat side, I, I find to be um, actually shockingly unhumanitarian. Uh, so it's really hard That's for- Strong me- statement you're making. Uh, yeah.
1: Somebody listening to this could say you could be semi-socialist.
0: Uh, they can say whatever they want. I care about human rights.
1: Okay, but <laughs> but economically, you're comfortable more leaning towards the socialist side. If it comes down to uh, uh, programs to take care of people, would you say you you put yourself in that position? A Absolutely, little bit? Okay.
0: which is why I have always been a Democrat because I do believe in social programs. I've um, I've never voted for a Republican before, although I would consider it if um, they had policies that made sense to me. Any
1: Republican that's been attractive to you? Anybody that you say, you know what, that guy could have worked?
0: Marco Rubio. Really? Yeah. Why Marco Rubio? Uh, Again, it was that crazy moment, the first time that I ever saw him speak in person where I was just so uh, attracted to his personality and to some of his policies and the way that he talks about unifying people and you know, including people that have usually been left behind. That, that makes sense to me. And he's a fantastic speaker. You oh know? my
1: gosh. Yeah, maybe. I mean, won't. right
0: now I'll take anyone that even knows how to speak in full sentences in the White House. Um, so it's fair so. to
1: say that the gift we had outside for you of uh, President Donald Trump's poster signed we had that as a gift for you we were not going to give it to you to go home with it because
0: oh perfect it, yeah i mean um, and you thank even, you so much didn't you get like the two <laughs> mega
1: hats we got two different yeah, sizes yeah. for you so we have a waiting outside for you. we got mega candy mega steak we got everything for you outside oh, of you.
0: i've seen some really interesting takes on the mega hats recently um which say uh, make racism bad again
1: make racism bad again yep. make racism bad again yeah. MR- Uh
0: huh. unfortunately i think this president has um Made people think that it's acceptable.
1: You think so? Yes. You fully believe that? Mm-hmm. 100%. Yep. Okay. Would you position yourself as a true believer?
0: In what? In your beliefs. <laughs> In my beliefs, yes, yeah. absolutely. Like you,
1: like you said earlier, if you don't stand for something, you'll, you know, you you consider yourself as a true believer.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm back to that. <laughs> okay. I had a few years where I was um, steered down the wrong path.
1: So the reason why I asked this question is the following reason, because you know how uh, uh, at first anything we do we're naively in love you know like you and i are dating we're 13 years old (laughs) and i'm the first guy you've kissed you're the first girl i've kissed i'm like oh my gosh i love her for the rest of my life she's my mommy i love her so much and we're inseparable right yeah puppy love right yeah and i had that
0: when i was a kid yeah me too (laughs) believe
1: me i had that in germany at the refugee camp i was staying at so wow and then you move on and you go to a different relationship and a different relationship and a different Mm -hmm. relationship. and the older you get the, the tougher it becomes to go experience what you once experienced with that puppy love, right? Yeah. So for you, you're, you're in a family, your grandpa's an MI person, 27 years military, you know, uh, then from there you go and you're inspired to work on the uh, Barack Obama campaign, senator, you have breakfast with him with uh, him and Rahm Emanuel and you're like oh my gosh I can't believe this person exists Mm -hmm. and then you see him win. you go back to school you talk to your professors and then from there you come out and you start working on a couple different campaigns you go to China you kind of see the human rights that kind of moves you you come over here you write your PhD thesis on it then you get involved with Cambridge Analytica then you're getting involved and then you're seeing what happened with this campaign President Trump gets elected he becomes president then you become a whistleblower then you step away and then, but you also said sometime where, you know, even you have to make money. So sometimes to make money, you got to take some jobs that you don't know what happens.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Are, you, are, you, are you at a point where you still have that naive, innocence, love of wanting to correct an injustice? Or have you gone from that to skeptic to a little bit cynic? Have you, have you gone to that part where politics has gotten you to be a cynic a little bit right now or not yet?
0: Well, <sighs> I think cynicism has its place. It's always good to have a dose of, instead of cynicism, I would say skepticism, to make sure that you are actually questioning what people are telling you. I think I spent too many years believing people at face value that what they were telling me was true and, and that they actually had an intention to do something good for the world when they didn't. And so now I'm a lot more skeptical of what I'm told. I do more due diligence, <laughs> definitely, than I did before, before I think about working with people or thinking that what they say to the public is actually what they believe behind closed doors. And you know, that's why I think right now in the presidential field, um, when I think about you know, who represents my true beliefs, some people have some good things to say, but um, you know, I, I haven't thrown my support behind anybody specifically because there's nobody that that really speaks to everything that I'm talking about. I mean, the, the only candidates that we have that even have technology policy are Elizabeth Warren and Andrew Yang. Mm-hmm. I mean, Andrew Yang's fantastic, but you know, he would he would make a really great you know CTO of America. Uh, but the, we, I think, we really have been shown over the past few years that we need someone with a lot of foreign policy experience, someone that can go out and do diplomacy. Maybe Elizabeth Warren is one of those people, maybe she's not, but the rest of the political field hasn't even thought about data or privacy policy or technology regulation and they don't even talk about it. And uh, you know obviously that's my number one issue Mm -hmm. at the moment because Mm -hmm. i believe it underpins so many of our other problems that we have in society uh that it needs to be taken care of and it's not being addressed
1: i I wonder who is going to do it though i wonder who is going to actually be talking about it because uh, when you look at i haven't heard joe biden talk about it i haven't heard Mm -hmm. sanders talk about it no yang will talk about it and people will (laughs) resonate with them elizabeth warren is part of her message tulsi gabbard i haven't heard Mm -mm. Uh, so do you think uh, what do you think are the chances of anybody being able to beat trump right now the way it's going
0: i would say right now if it's if it continues to go as it as it is right now no one can beat him
1: no one can beat him
0: not if it continues to go as it's going right now
1: what do you mean by that
0: I think the Democratic side is spending a, too much time tearing each other apart as opposed to actually building a unified message that can get people to care about politics again um, and actually get people out to the polls. I, I think right now the DNC is terribly disorganized and that's unfortunate. Now. There's another topic of what's going on right now, which is impeachment. Mm-hmm. So where is that going to go? Is he going to be impeached by the Senate? We don't know. The articles have not even been sent over to the Senate. I have a strong feeling after watching the Republican members of the House of Representatives making their testimony that it is very unlikely that the Senate will, will proceed. Two-thirds?
1: Two-thirds? Yeah. I mean, so so who voted president? Tulsi Gabbard voted president. <laughs> two other people voted president, yeah. right? And 100% Republicans voted you know, against it. And in Senate, you already heard what mm-hmm. uh, what uh, he said that he's gonna do, it's not even it's gonna die day one, right? right? Um, but do, do you think, he, here's a, a curious question for you, since you've worked in a marketing world and messaging is critical, do you think sometimes uh, a lot of these candidates are in the shadow of Nancy Pelosi and the impeachment campaign that they have, that they're driving, where it's taking it to, like last night. So nobody knew the debate was taking place last. I'm like, oh, should sure, we got a Democratic debate, right? Do you think I also bit?
0: forgot? That's what <laughs> and I'm that. <laughs> so,
1: do you think, do you think, in a strategic way, it's actually hurting the camp because, like, uh, uh, it's almost like a father that cannot help take the shadow away, so his father, his son can. Uh, you know, it's like the, dem- the DNC cannot take the attention away to say, listen, mm-hmm. let, let Biden, let Bernie, let Warren, let these guys get there, because the media should be talking about them 24-7, not be talking about impeachment, knowing you're not going to win two-thirds on Senate. So uh, yeah. uh, what are your thoughts on that? You think it's kind of uh, hurting a little bit of the Democratic candidates?
0: Well, I think technically it, it could be, but we can't think of it that way, because when laws are broken and when our Constitution is violated, people need to be held to account. And I'm sorry, but I actually believe that when this president is no longer immune, when he's no longer in this seat, that he will be indicted for many different crimes, actually. You think so? Absolutely. How
1: certain are you that? <laughs> I'm
0: pretty sure there's sealed indictments waiting for him. You think so? Yes.
1: So let me ask you. So, I mean, the, the same can be said. Because for me, when we're going through this, here's how I process it. And again, mm-hmm. I, I I prefer you challenge me nonstop the entire mm-hmm. time, okay? <laughs> so. This is how I process it. So when, you're, when we're going through Cambridge uh, uh, Analytica and I'm looking at some, okay, it's very obvious. You know, the different kind of persuadables, the deterrents, you know, the possible pro-Trump, the absolute anti-Hillary, you know, great, great strategy. I get it. Mm-hmm. But uh, somebody could say, well, Brittany, I mean, let's not be naive. This has been going on for a long time. It just happens to be that today's tool is this. Somebody could say, you know, there used to be time we used it uh, by bullying people like literally bullying people and preventing some communities from being able to vote and knowing who to target and putting the fear into some communities to not even going to vote by bringing some power people like in the 1800s mm-hmm. and the 1900s, hey, making sure people were fed to vote, you know, just throw some food at them. Mm-hmm. They needed some poor areas to win their votes over. Mm-hmm. Well then, you know, it could be we use the mob a little bit because the mob helps with Kennedy to help them with election and, you know, the mobs involved with that uh, election that took place. and then. Well, you know, uh, what helped with uh, some of these other guys is radio. Whoever was better on radio, oh, it's not fair. Nixon wasn't good on TV, but Nixon was better on radio. But the reason why JFK won is because JFK is better on TV and Nixon wasn't good on TV. He was sweating, he hadn't shaved, he had a 4 o'clock, you know. <laughs> so, hey, but that's not fair because JFK is better looking. You don't need to vote a, for a president because he's better looking than I mean, me because Nixon's not as hand, handsome as he's and he speaks as. So, or somebody could say, well, If you look at media today, 99% of media, except for one TV station, is on the liberal side. Somebody could say mainstream media is all liberal. You can say MSNBC, NBC, CBS, ABC, you know, CNN. You can go Time Magazine, Fortune Magazine, Money Magazine, New York Times, LA Times. I mean, you could say New York Post, right? Breitbart, right? Drudge Report, right? Mm -hmm. Washington uh, 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 Times, right? But Washington Post, left, right? Somebody could say... Well, this is great. I don't know why you guys are so upset because liberals have been doing this for a very, very long time with the media. And the only opposition you have is Fox. So maybe, just maybe, again, I want to hear your argument on this. Just maybe you are getting the taste of your own medicine. Why are you upset now? Because Trump won. Because if Hillary would have won, would you have come out and said that she used some tactics or maybe Trump was involved or, you know, Russia was involved? So again, I want to hear your response to that.
0: So... I'm just asking, at minimum, that we obey the laws that we've already agreed to uphold. Voter suppression is illegal. Discrimination, using racism and sexism in order to gain power, incitement of violence, all of those things are definitely illegal. Yet somehow the Trump campaign and the Trump super PAC were allowed to use these tactics in order to get him into the White House, and ever since he's been there, he's used some of the same tactics to stay there. That's a big problem for me and unfortunately Facebook refuses to enforce these laws on its platform either even though it is the world's largest communications platform. I'm not talking about censorship versus free speech and Mm -hmm. I hate that people always bring it to that because my free speech is not unfettered my free speech ends when your human rights begin. So I am not allowed to discriminate against you. I am not allowed to incite violence upon you. I'm not allowed to suppress your vote. But yet somehow I'm allowed to do that on Facebook or politicians are allowed to. I'm not allowed to, because I'm a common person. This is the problem that I'm talking about. No,
1: I'm, I'm with you on that part. I mean, are you kidding me? Absolutely not. But what are your thoughts on uh, mainstream media? Because mainstream media, <laughs> I mean, you could say, uh, Britain, you're a smart uh, cookie. You're, it's not like you're lightweight. You're brilliant yourself. I mean, mainstream media was 100% Team Hillary.
0: Mainstream it, it, media, unfortunately, was 100% Team Trump because they covered him disproportionately and name recognition is t- everything at the polling booth. But,
1: but, but that's a different story. That's called being dumb. That's called being dumb. That's not called being Team Trump. That's called the more you talk about him, the more attention you give him versus the more you talk about... So, so, so what I mean by this is the following. So let's just say yeah. if you and I break up, okay? Mm-hmm. and. And I'm going out there and say, but you don't understand, she's also this, and she's also, she was this, she was that, she was this. And, you know, you're kind of like, but look, here's what I wanted, and that's not what he wanted. I wanted to have kids, he didn't want to have kids. Mm-hmm. And so, you're talking about why we had a different. I'm talking about how bad of a person you were. Guess who's winning? You're Me. winning. I know. Yeah, I'm mainstream media. Right. I, you kind of are like, listen, we need to build a wall. I hate the
0: wall. That's what I want to do. But if you keep on saying wall, 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 exactly. people think about the wall. <laughs> exactly.
1: No one thought about the wall before he brought up the no, wall. Not, not at all. I'm not sitting here telling you. Yeah. Like What I'm saying to you is I honestly think the DNC needs to hire a legitimate marketing firm to help with the languaging. And if MSM, mainstream media, needs to collectively come together and change their messaging mm-hmm. or else the way they're going right now, it's going to be bad for a long time, because the more you give me an anti how bad of a person I am, you're constantly building me up. I don't think that's an effective strategy.
0: No, I totally agree in something that you'll, I don't know if you'll find it funny or horrible, uh, but after Donald Trump won the election, and we as Cambridge Analytica Commercial were going out to pitch advertising campaigns, when we went to go pitch uh, big media companies, they would say, you know, we'd get a a meeting with CNN, for example, and we'd go in and we'd be like, oh, well, we thought it was going to be really hard to get this meeting because, you know, you don't like our biggest client. And they'd say, oh, no, we made so much money off of covering Donald Trump. (laughs) You're forgiven, don't worry about it. Get out of here. Yeah.
1: So what does that tell you about their uh, uh, loyalty? Is the loyalty to money or is the loyalty to their beliefs? Indirectly, my interpretation of what you just said is they're not true believers.
0: No, but again, the entire point of a news agency is that they're supposed to do their research and present unbiased facts. Come on,
1: come on! Now, you think that's
0: the point? You, you, you think so? They're supposed to keep themselves in business.
1: You think Sean Hannity is going to be unbiased? You think <laughs> you think Rachel no. Maddow is going to be unbiased? Never. You, you, you think. A Cooper or a Waters World, you think these guys are going to come on now.
0: Sure, but their entire business model I is to stay in business. Get it. I
1: totally get it. And yeah.
0: continue to present what they see yeah. as news. Right? I get it.
1: It's so. going to be interesting who the next candidate is going to be. When I say next candidate, right. let's just say the next four years, you know, he's reelected. Mm-hmm. Because if it goes like this, uh, the strategy they're using it's going to be disastrous if it goes this way and yeah. it, did you see the other day one of the congressmen said don't uh, buy a house in DC rent because many of you're going to lose your jobs with the way you're going right now because your community's not going to vote for you uh it, it's it's again United States of America politicians like if you and I sit down here for instance you and I Mm-hmm. We go have a drink together. We go for a cup of coffee. We go have dinner together. We're gonna have differences,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but we're probably gonna walk away saying, hey, really enjoyed the conversation. Of course. This was phenomenal. Totally. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like, you know, he came up and he said, well, you know, I th- th- be, and I'm like, listen, in my company, I have 50% Democrats. We've got 12,000 agents, 50% mm-hmm. Democrats, 50% Republicans, mm-hmm. okay? And obviously when I say 50% Republicans, we got the 10, 15% in the middle that's independent, libertarian, and obviously you got a community that could care less about politics. <laughs> yeah, totally. Just like, don't even yeah. bring up anything with Politics. I don't want to talk about right. it, but you and I can have that civil conversation. Mm-hmm. These guys in D.C. are having a hard time having that civil conversation. It's like and as that if they is want so sad, isn't other. it? It's sad. It's very sad. It's extremely sad to see that take uh, place.
0: As we said when we started our conversation today, uh, you know, unfortunately, who loses when there is arguments in politics? It's the citizens.
1: Yeah, no, no doubt about it. The voters are losing. Uh, I'm I'm from the school of thought of believing that in every generation, like, um, uh, I believe Trump got elected because of Obama. I think Obama gave birth to Trump, mm-hmm. uh, but I think Bush gave birth to Obama, mm-hmm. and I think Clinton gave birth to Yeah, Bush. it's a pendulum And I think saying. Carter gave birth to Reagan. And I think, you know, I mean, I can go forward, you know, we can go back and forth if you notice what happens. We get sick of something saying, you know, I don't know. I want this. No, no, no. I want it back again. You know what? It was better when it was Democrat. I don't know. Maybe we need a Republican. Like, we keep going back and forth. But I think the one thing that I'd love to see happen, which I haven't yet seen in America during my time of being here. I I was a Clinton fan. Bill, I was a Clinton fan. Obviously, forget about what he did with Monica. But as somebody who would sit down and do his stuff, I was a fan of his. Mm -hmm. Uh, It'd be very interesting if all of a sudden we get a synergist that's actually able to bring people together. I know. I don't know if it's going to happen or not. Maybe I'm a little bit too optimistic that it's possible. But, you know, I've seen these things happen. You know, you see families that are divided, and somebody comes in and brings the whole family together. Right. It's a beautiful thing.
0: <laughs> I know. Very,
1: very interesting to have somebody come in here. L- let me ask you this question. we got like a few minutes left. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what is life like right now for you as a whistleblower, career-wise, your personal life? your comfort, your level of comfort of feeling safe, your fears. What is life of a whistleblower today?
0: Well, it's definitely the scariest thing I've ever done. i um, not going to pretend anything other than that, uh, but it's been something where I've been so lucky that what I said resonated with people. People actually care now. They care about their use of technology, they care about being abused and taken advantage of by big tech. They care about owning their data and actually having control over the value that they produce every day and over their private information, if if they want to keep it private, but it should be all of our choice. And so I've been lucky, you know, I was given a platform, I had the incredible opportunity to work with the great Hat team, um, and we've now been shortlisted for an Oscar this week, which is just so incredible. And I was so lucky to work with HarperCollins as well to write this book, Targeted, and to get the word out there. And now I have millions of supporters around the world who ask me every day, what can I do? How do I protect myself? How do I support the Own Your Data campaign? And these are people that are calling their legislators. These are people that are going out and getting active. Some of these are people that are working in big advertising companies that are now working on data protection policy and working on data ownership mechanisms for their consumers where that concept didn't even exist in their Mm -hmm. companies before i mean it's it's really a revolution i i've been again you know lucky and honored to be a part of it because a lot of other whistleblowers don't get that um I, i earlier I think it was before this interview that we were chatting about uh, National Whistleblower Day that just started this year in Congress. July 30th, right?
1: July 30th. Yeah.
0: And, you know, it was uh, many days of different sessions in order to help whistleblowers. And some of these sessions were, you know, is your story a book or how to tell your story to the media?
1: Was it therapeutic?
0: Uh, And, you know, I... At first it was really disheartening for me because I saw some people in in this room who had a really important story to tell. They had managed to find evidence of corruption in government agencies or within important companies and they didn't know how to talk to the media or or they had been trying for years and no one wanted to tell their story. I'm sitting there with five million, uh, you know, press pieces about me and my story, and a book deal, and a film, and I'm just like, wow. It's so amazing that some of these people persist and keep on going, even though people are not listening. And the fact that I was so lucky that people wanted to listen just blows my mind. And I, I want to address, you know, the safety question that you had, which is that you know, no, I, I don't feel completely safe. Um, it's not like I get threats every day, uh, but there are definitely a lot of powerful people that would prefer if I stopped doing interviews like this every day um, and would prefer if I stopped if I stopped pushing data privacy legislation in Congress. But I'm not going to stop. The threats are not interesting to me. So I think that, it's just important to recognize that becoming a whistleblower is not easy and it's something that should be encouraged in order to force transparency and to weed out corruption. You know, one day, hopefully, uh, whistleblowers are protected enough that it's a lot easier for us to stop corruption before it becomes a really big problem.
1: Would you say Julian Assange is a, a friend or somebody you admire?
0: Well, he was someone that I admired for a very long time. Uh, I think. Whatever role that he had in the hacking of the DNC or Mm -hmm. not, um, that's not something that I support, obviously. Uh, But the work that he did in the beginning uh, and what he stood for, for full transparency and for holding power to account, is something that I will always support. His dropping of the Iraq war files to show the crimes against humanity that were committed Mm -hmm. or war crimes that were committed had such an effect on what I did for the rest of my life and the way that I viewed the world and the way that I view my own government and the way that I question things. So I think, you know, he's someone that is in a very sad situation right now. And it's specifically because whistleblowing laws are not strong enough and they need to be.
1: How was it when you met with him? Because I know you and him had a meeting together. How was that experience?
0: It was so sad to see someone who has been basically in solitary confinement for seven years. He was nearly see-through and I hardly got to have a conversation with him. I mean, you could tell he was obviously psychologically affected by being in there because it was almost like he was just talking at me for the whole like twenty minutes that I was there, um, you know everything that was inside his head because he doesn't really get that much human contact. So everything he was thinking about, he just rattled off, and it, you know wow. it's really sad to see that. Uh, especially when when I worked in human rights, working with um, prisoners of conscience and working with political prisoners was something that I specialized in, and you know at the time I really did kind of see him as a political prisoner.
1: I mean, his life is done. I mean, wh- what are you going to do? The married kids, public life, going out, seeing things, movies—just the day-to-day. I want to go to a restaurant having dinner. He can never do that for the rest of his life.
0: Australia is fighting to get him back, but Australia versus America doesn't usually end up battle. with Australia yeah. on top.
1: No, it's not. It's not. Uh, uh, it's not one that uh, you're going to win too often. Right. What are some of the biggest threats we have today? Now, obviously, you know, data is one. And by the way, you know what's so weird is I, I'm, a, I'm a CEO of a financial foreman. I go to a lot of these conferences with these big 50, 100, 200 billion auto insurance companies. Mm-hmm. And in the last 18 months, the most common conversation that's been coming up is cybersecurity. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just, it's, we've never seen this much before. Absolutely. And it continues to coming up right now. Right. Based on what you see and what you know and being on the inside on many of these things, what do you see as the biggest threat we are facing today? Is it... Uh, uh, data, cybersecurity. Is it China? Is it Russia? Is it internal? Is it companies the size of Facebook, Amazon? You know, uh, what what do you see as the biggest threat to the average person?
0: I would say the biggest threat to the average person is the fact that there is a complete and utter lack of data protection, and data protection has a lot of different parts to it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, That is everything from, yes, cybersecurity fending off attacks that could come from anywhere in the world, from bad actors. Uh, That is also securing the value that us as individuals produce. The tracking and traceability of where data goes, who has it, where it's held, what it's being used for and actually having any sort of opt-in or permission structures for my personal information Mm -hmm. to be used by certain people for certain purposes and the right to actually monetize my own value for myself as opposed to being exploited. Data and the way that it is used means that anybody in the world can buy my time, my attention, and my privacy. It goes to the highest bidder. And right now, because of our lack of legislation and regulation, because of our lack of technology that can actually manage and track and trace data in a reliable way, it means that our democracy is up to the highest bidder. And that's what scares me the most, which is why I do what I do every day.
1: What is my data worth? What is the average person's data worth?
0: Your data can be worth whatever you want it to be, depending on who you want to share it with. Uh, I really hate that Mark Zuckerberg tells people it's worth, oh, $17 a quarter or something like that. You know what? I just had a friend that, that did a study with um, you know, a set of diabetes researchers and pharma companies and said, for somebody that qualifies for a diabetes study, how much do you pay for that medical data? Because you know, most medical data comes from young 18 to 35-year-old white men in college who go for extra beer money <laughs> to medical trials, right? And so to find someone that qualifies for a diabetes study, it costs them $28,000 for six to eight weeks of data in order to find the people, in order to get people to be, become part of a study, in order to complete the study yeah. for a couple months of medical data, which is probably just blood tests, urine samples, they go in a couple times, right? So if we are to build a future where we own our data and where we are actually able to profit from our own human value, we need to have systems where we can share our data anonymously and securely, where we have laws and regulations that allow us to own it as our property. And that, okay, I'm fine if I produce data with a farmer company or I produce data with Facebook. They can have part ownership and I can have part ownership. I wouldn't have produced that data without them. That's fine. Fractionalized ownership is cool. But we really need to recognize that we have rights to the information that we produce in order to flip the switch and change these business models from being exploitative to empowering.
1: I think it's going to come soon, though. I actually think it's going to come soon. I I don't think it's something that's, you know, every time some idea comes in, there's a little bit of abuse, then there's a lot of abuse, then there's incredible wealth made, and then there's some regulations. Yes. And then you kind of uh, uh, work it out with the regulators and the entrepreneurs, and they make it work. I actually Mm -hmm. think, based on what you're saying, it's reasonable. A business like Facebook may say, okay, I'll pay this much for your data, I'll pay this much for your data, Mm -hmm. let's partner up on it. Uh, Very interesting. What's the cost of being a president today? Here's what I mean by it. Is there a dollar amount? Because I hear the numbers saying it costs $2 billion to be a president today, right? Mm-hmm. It costs a billion and a half to be a president today. Mm-hmm. Uh, can anybody get $2 billion behind them and be a president? Or do you need a little bit of a pitch man, somebody that's going to be able to be doing the work? What would you say is the number for someone to become a president?
0: Well, Donald Trump won the election with $600 million and it's not a lot. Hillary spent $1.3 billion.
1: What does that tell you?
0: It tells you that the tools are incredibly important. Uh, He definitely had a more sophisticated data strategy, that's for sure. But I think if we had laws and regulations that prevented fake news, disinformation, voter suppression, racism, incitement of violence, then he wouldn't have won because that's how he used to get where he is today.
1: So someone who is a better pitch man won and saved himself $700 million, or someone with a better marketing strategy won and saved himself $700 million?
0: Someone that was willing to break any laws in order to win. You think that? Won the you, campaign.
1: You firmly believe that?
0: Absolutely.
1: And you, you're saying you don't believe Hillary's camp at all broke any laws?
0: I don't know. I didn't work there.
1: Got it. Got it. <laughs> so you're talking about from your POV or where you were at? Mm-hmm. So so today you think the campaign this year it's going to be that much money spent as well like that kind of money you th- you're gonna go, we're gonna go a little higher.
0: Yeah, thanks very much to David Bossy, um, head of Citizens United, who now has again put democracy on an auction block and whoever wants to pay the most money is going to be the most powerful mouthpiece. That's the biggest disaster that we've ever had in politics in America. The rest of the world thinks it's insane that we allow super PACs to exist, where you can funnel hundreds of millions of dollars through them. It's completely insane. You can obfuscate where that money comes from. You can put complex structures so you don't know who the donors Mm -hmm. actually Mm -hmm. are. I mean, it's disgusting. It
1: is disgusting. You think it's going to go away, though?
0: Well, the first, ever, uh, the first ever tabling of uh, the reversal of yeah. it has started to be discussed this year, um, again, by Adam Schiff. Thank God for him. I, I think it's such an important conversation, especially because David Bossie was also the head of the Defeat Crooked Hillary campaign which was the Make America Number 1 Super PAC that was run by Cambridge Analytica, and spent all of their money targeting neurotic people with fear-based messaging and disinformation to get them to not vote for Hillary Clinton.
1: What's what's Alex doing today? (laughs) Is he working today? Absolutely. He he is.
0: I know from very many sources that he is still very active as a political consultant. apparently after the recent uh, conservative victory in the United Kingdom, he was seen uh, with the heads of the Leave EU Brexit campaign chugging champagne in Mayfair. So
1: still active.
0: He might have had something to do with it.
1: Not he might have. I mean, at this point, you know, anybody who knows who he is, he did. Somebody asked me a question. I post the question. Somebody said, W- tell us about your involvement with Funware. What's mm-hmm. your is it Funware? Funware. Am I saying it properly?
0: P H U N. Yeah. P H U um, N. I you're stepped like, down from negotiations. Okay, so you're not a part of it at all. To right join their now. board, yeah. Okay. Um, I was really looking forward to working with a data company that actually wanted to give their uh, their data back to consumers. Um, they had designed a strategy that I was helping them with where all of the data that they own on individuals would be put into a wallet so an app on your phone you would log in and you would be able to see uh you would be able to see all the data that they mm-hmm. had on you mm-hmm. how much money they had earned off of it and then it would be given back to you so you now own that you can decide That's what they were doing that was the plan and then i found out that they were working with the trump campaign from investigative journalists not from the executives themselves so, I ceased all negotiations and I'm no longer involved with them. Never received. Oh, yeah. Okay, I've never received it. a dollar, a stock, a token from those individuals, and I will not pursue that in the future. That's good
1: to know. That's very good to know because I think uh, what uh, it was a tweet by David Carroll that said, you know, look at Brittany Kaiser. She's back at it again, yeah. involved with these guys and helping out with Trump. Uh, what are the chances of Zuckerberg or Dorsey? If Zuckerberg or Dorsey ran,
0: mm-hmm.
1: how much of an advantage did they have for being a president?
0: Huh. Well, that's, that's an interesting one. Because 2.2
1: 2 billion followers, essentially.
0: Yeah. Mark Zuckerberg uh, was, from everything that I heard, had designs on running for president before the... Cambridge Analytica, Facebook, data crisis. Now I don't think he would decide to pursue that given the current atmosphere. But considering he has the world's largest communications platform, I think nearly anything that he wanted to do he could accomplish if he were to abuse his own tools.
1: If he were to abuse his own tools. Yes. Got it. If he were to abuse his own tools. I mean,
0: he lets any politician anywhere in the world abuse yeah. his tools, so.
1: Why wouldn't he let himself? Is that kind of what you Why wouldn't he would let think? himself? Yeah. I think at this point, the, the light is so much on. He would have to step down, sell majority of his shares, et cetera, et cetera, to say, mm-hmm. if I want to do it, I don't know if he's going to be running. Although I heard he gave a recommendation to Mayor Pete to uh one of his best marketers at Facebook to help Mayor Pete, and apparently it's working for him. He he was Mm -hmm. able to get some attention there. Let's do a quick speed round, okay, to wrap this up. Mm -hmm. I'll give a name and tell me the first word that comes to mind,
0: okay? (laughs) Uh, This'll be fun.
1: This'll be fun. First word (laughs) that comes to mind, uh, whatever it may be, tell me the first word that comes to mind, okay? Linda Tripp. Do you know who she is?
0: Yeah. She's a whistleblower. I I know. Actually, I was going to say old school. Yeah, old school. (laughs) Nostalgia. Yes.
1: Nostalgia. Okay, cool. How about uh, Sharon Watkins? Remind me. Enron uh, whistleblower. Oh,
0: I met her. Okay. I met her for the first time at the congressional thing at HERO.
1: Hero. Okay, cool. Yes. Mark Felt. Nixon scandal. He was the oh, FBI guy that came out. Yes,
0: he was. So I'm studying whistleblowers to be
1: prepared for no, you. No, that's
0: great. I think yeah. of Daniel Ellsberg when I think of yes. of Watergate. Absolutely. Here's a, here's a good
1: one. Here, here's a good one here. Jeffrey Wigand. I may not be saying it right. Je- Jeffrey Wigand. What was he, involved from, uh, with? he was a former tobacco uh, company executive that did uh, the 60 Minutes. The movie The Insider with Russell Crowe.
0: Oh, I never saw that, never actually. Saw well, let me
1: put it to you this way. You Is have this something watch. I
0: need to see? A hundred percent. Okay, great. A
1: hundred percent. It's phenomenal.
0: I will. It's uh, on my uh, list.
1: Julian Assange.
0: Uh, sad.
1: Sad. Rachel Maddow. Angry. <laughs> okay, Trump. Criminal. Okay, Bernie. Activist. Uh, Biden. Vice. Hillary Clinton. Secretary. Okay, Uh, David Carroll. Professor. Robert
0: Mueller. That's hard, so many words come to mind. Um, Integrity.
1: Okay, Uh, any lobbyist for these big companies as a profession is what I'm asking.
0: So I'm a lobbyist too.
1: You're a lobbyist too.
0: But I'm a lobbyist Pro bono for things that I believe in. Lobbying and that's a is different important. Story. Lobbying is important, but uh, it depends what you're lobbying for. Kay. Lobbying has a place. So.
1: You do believe that it has a place.
0: Yeah. Some lobbyists are very seedy. Some of them are not.
1: Okay. Uh, uh, Robert Mercer.
0: Hmm. Data scientist. Ted Cruz. Senator. Chris Wiley. Whistleblower. Steve Bannon. Populist.
1: Corey Lewandowski,
0: (laughs) Used car salesman. Used
1: car salesman. (laughs) Alexander Nix.
0: Fugitive.
1: Fugitive. Bloomberg, last one.
0: Hmm. Candidate. Candidate. I mean, this
1: guy's got $54 billion. He's got all the money in the world to be able to make it really work he also has
0: quite a media platform
1: massive media platform are you kidding me it's a massive media platform it's going to be interesting to see if it's going to work as a case study i'm just curious to know how far he can go with this working out first of all Brittany, thank you for coming out what i do want to say is guys if you haven't yet purchased a book buy a copy and start reading it i highly recommend you read this type of content because it's good for you to be in the know especially today knowing data is now multi-trillion dollar your industry, for you know how to protect yourself, your business, and your family. Brittany, thank you so much for coming out. I had so much fun with this. Absolutely. Uh, Thank so you much so much, much for, you for having me. Out. Yes, It's a pleasure. Appreciate you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star. Write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick David, And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.